Guys, we're going to continue our awesome God sermon series that we began a few weeks ago. We're actually on part three this morning. So if you have a Bible, this would be a great time to grab it, open it, turn it on. That's your jam, as Casey says. We're going to go to Genesis chapter 16. We're going to read a whole chapter this morning. This one's for you Bible nerds. Buckle up. This is the story of Hagar, or Hagar, I'm not really sure how to pronounce it. It begins like this, Genesis 16, verse 1. Now Sarah, or Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. She had a female Egyptian servant whose name was Hagar. And Sarah said to Abram, behold now, The Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Go into my servant. It may be that I shall obtain children by her. And Abram listened to the voice of Sarah. So, after Abram had lived ten years in the land of Canaan, Sarah, Abram's wife, took Hagar, the Egyptian, her servant, and gave her to Abram, her husband, as a wife. And he went into Hagar, and she conceived. And when she saw that she had conceived... She looked with contempt on her mistress, Sarah. And Sarah said to Abraham, May the wrong done to me be on you. I gave my servant to your embrace. And when she saw that she had conceived, she looked on contempt with me. Looked on me with contempt. May the Lord judge between you and me. But Abraham said to Sarah, Behold, your servant is in your power. Do to her as you please. And Sarah dealt harshly with her, and she fled from her. Verse 7. The angel of the Lord found her, that is Hagar, by a spring of water in the wilderness, the spring on the way to Shur. And the angel said to Hagar, servant of Sarah, where have you come from? Where are you going? She said, I'm fleeing from my mistress, Sarah. The angel of the Lord said to her, Return to your mistress and submit to her. The angel of the Lord also said to her, I will surely multiply your offspring so that they cannot be numbered for multitude. The angel of the Lord said to her, Behold, you are pregnant and you shall bear a son. You shall call his name Ishmael because the Lord has listened to your affliction. He will be a wild donkey of a man, his hand against everyone, and everyone's hand against him. And he shall dwell over against all his kinsmen. So she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her, You are a God of seeing. For she said, Truly, here I have seen him who looks after me. Therefore, the well or the spring where she was was called Bir Lahai Aroi. It lies between Kadesh and Bered. Verse 15, And Hagar bore Abram a son, and Abram called the name of his son, whom Hagar bore, Ishmael. Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore Ishmael to Abram. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Oh, this story, this, this moment in history... your word to us now 
Lord, I pray that as we consider the, this, this event and the way you, you entered into this really difficult, unjust, painful moment to bring about redemption, Lord, would you help us not to merely learn more about you, but to even experience more of you? Lord, that we might find our own lives being caught up in this, this incredible story, your story of your faithfulness. Help us now, in Jesus' name, amen. What a story. It's an epic story. It's actually a story within a story. Uh, the bigger story that we just sort of like dropped into, it's the story of the ancient patriarch, the, the father of faith, Abraham, the beginning of what would eventually become known as God's people, Israel. God had made a promise to this man, Abram, and his wife that through their relationship, through their wedding, he would have offspring. And God would use this family and grow this family and multiply this family and through this family bless the world and, and, and undo all of the brokenness and ultimately work out his plan of redemption, like on a global scale, on an eternal scale. Quite a promise. And so then the story begins a few chapters ago, but then in this moment... Something kind of happens. It's like a little mini episode within the, the series. Um, it's the story of a man and a woman, Abraham, or Abram at this point, and his wife Sarah, uh, believing God, this God who Abram had met out in the wilderness, believing that, that he was not lying, that this, this was for real, that he was going to use him and his family to do something redemptive in the world. Only when the promise was originally made, it was like 10 years previous to this point. We, we just read that detail. 10 years. Anyone been waiting for God to fulfill a promise that you think he made for like a decade now? Isn't time just the best? A decade, that's a chunk of time. For some, you're like, <laughs> you don't know my story. That's nothing. They wait for 10 years, and eventually, one of them gets the bright idea. Perhaps God needs a hand. Perhaps we will expedite the situation, uh, the situation, and give God a hand because, heck, it's been a decade now, and not a whole lot is happening. It's interesting that Sarah explicitly says, God is preventing me from having a child. In fact, God was the one who promised that he would give her a child. Many children over time. So they decide to take matters into their own hand. And of course it goes bad. It goes terribly wrong. Um, in, in a sense, you could say like this is the story of the Bible. This is the story that keeps getting told over and over and over again. God makes a promise to, to, to redeem the brokenness in the world. He partners with some humans. He says, I want to involve you. I want to include you in the process. And he makes a promise to them. Time goes by and eventually humans get the bright idea. Let's, let's intervene. Let's help God. His plan is all right, but we can improve upon it. Let's build a tower. Let's, I know, why don't you take my servant, Hagar. How, how, how in any way did that, how was that ever a good idea? I don't know. Maybe I'm a little out of touch with the ancient world but reading it, I'm thinking this is going to end horribly, which, of 
course it does. But, as the story goes, God faithfully intervenes. He interjects. He steps into the story that's seemingly gone sideways and begins to redeem brokenness once again. It's a great story. It's the story of the human condition and the consequences of sin. In this particular situation, the result of Abram and his wife Sarah deciding to quote-unquote help God is this innocent woman, Hagar, who's like a servant, which I suppose would have been like a, a normal thing in the ancient world. But she's innocent. She gets dragged into this uh, marriage that ends up going terribly bad and, and she ends up getting cast aside, driven out, forgotten, told to go away because you are now no longer our solution but a big problem. And so she's collateral damage. It's because of their sin that now this woman is experiencing pain and brokenness. You know, that's typically how our sin works. It's never just personal. It's never a private matter. When I choose not to trust God or to help God, depending upon how you want to look at it, it's not just my life I'm messing with. People get hurt all around us. It's the story of the human condition. It's also the story of God's faithfulness amidst human unfaithfulness. God has this uncanny knack, this this habit of constantly showing up in the middle of human unfaithfulness and saying, but I made a promise and I'm going to keep the promise. And no matter what happens, I'm going to redeem the situation. And so it's also a story of God's compassion towards people like Hagar, the marginalized, the unseen, the unheard. You know, I would add as well that God seems to have a special affinity for women in the Bible. It's undeniable. It's a, it's a meta-narrative over and over and over again. Hagar, Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, Mary, the woman at the well, etc., etc., etc. I think it's fantastic that we have our first female vice president now. That's kind of an exciting thing. Whatever your politics might be, I think that's something we're celebrating because it kind of seems to align with God's affinity to use, well, in this case, a woman, but not just women, whoever society has marginalized, historically, whoever society has devalued or pushed aside. And so I'm personally all for celebrating that wherever we see God working like that in the world. I think it's amazing. God has a habit of restoring dignity to those who have been forgotten. This is also a beautiful story. A kind of snapshot of the way God ministers to a hurting person. I would suggest that this story actually gives us a pattern for how to um, do ministry, as we say. If you're interested in um, being a part of what God is doing, just, I don't know, get, getting involved with people's lives around you, particularly when you notice someone, a friend, a family member, a random person, a colleague, whatever, hurting, broken, 
feeling invisible, unheard, the victim of injustice, suffering the consequences of sin, their own or someone else's, and you're like, man, I want to be a part of this person's life because I know God's got a story for them as well. This gives us like a pattern. How does God minister to people? How does God show up in a situation like this? What's, What's his posture? How does he start? What, how does he go about it? And it gives us this really cool sort of paradigm for how God ministers to Hagar. Verse 8, it says, it, the, the, the exchange begins when God says, Hagar, where have you come from and where are you going? Those two questions, they actually get asked quite a bit throughout Scripture. It's almost like this sort of ancient idiom. Where are you coming from? Where are you going? In other words, what's your story? Tell me your life story. I've got two hours. Go for it. Don't hold back. Where are you coming from? What have you been through? Who are you? Where does it hurt? And where are you going? Where are you trying to get to? What are you looking for? What what are you hoping will happen next? It's a great place to start in any situation where someone's hurting. Tell me your story. So easy just to assume, is it not? See someone's situation, you're like, oh, I get it, I get it. I, I know where you're coming from. I know, it. I know why you're like that. No, you don't. No, you don't, nor do I. We never do. Unless you've actually asked them their story. Tell me your story. Where are you coming from? How did you get here? Where, where do you want to go? What are you hoping for? Verse 9, the angel of the Lord responds... After she shares, I'm, I'm sure there's probably more detail to it, but he says, return to your mistress and submit to her. Now that's interesting. Return to where you've come from. The place or the people whom you're running away from, I want you to go back. And he also says, this is important, in verse 10, I will surely multiply your offspring so that they cannot be numbered for multitude, which is the exact same promise that God made Abraham. This is astounding. This is, this is like borderline scandalous. I mean, God picked Abraham, the father of the faith. This guy, he's like, he's like a hero, right? Maybe not like the hero, but he's, he's the man. And God makes this promise to Abraham, and then he makes the exact same, pro- exact same promise to Hagar, this woman who's been kicked out of the house because you're no longer helpful to our situation you're now a problem get out of the family we don't want to have anything to do with you because you remind me of my own brokenness now God's making this incredible promise to this Egyptian slave woman God gives grace to the humble this is a fact God gives grace to the humble And grace may not take away the pain or magically fix our problems. But grace does give us courage, strength, what we need to face our problems, work through our brokenness together. The principle also applies to forgiveness. Jesus commands us to forgive one another the way we've been forgiven. You know, forgiveness doesn't like magically solve our problems. 
but it helps us to tackle our problems together in relationship. Instead of demonizing the other, God's grace empowers us to remain at the table. Go back. I'm not done with this family, and I'm not done with you either. Hagar, go back, but take this with you. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do something incredible in your life as well. This unborn child you're carrying, I have a name for him. Know now for certain that I'm the God who listens and sees. I'm the God who hears and knows your pain. You are not forgotten. You are not invisible. I see you. I hear you. And I have a plan. No, go back with the grace you've received. Because I'm not done with your family. If that doesn't speak to every single one of us in the room, I don't know what does. One of the great promises of being a Christian, of the Bible, isn't that, hey, sign up for Jesus, get on the JC train, and all your problems will go away. If anyone ever told you that, you need to tell them to stop lying to people. It's not helpful. In this world, you will have much trouble. But take hope. Take heart. I've overcome the world. We know where the story ends. And so God doesn't just magically erase our problems. He doesn't just wipe away the pain. Not yet. He says, go back. I want to now use you. Take this promise with you. Take this grace with you. Take this forgiveness with you. Take, take the work that I'm doing in you and go back and share it with others. I'm not done with your family yet. I'm not done with your story yet. I'm not done with that situation yet. I wasn't done with you and I'm not done with them either. Go back. Now, a little qualification. If you're in a situation where you're suffering abuse, perhaps a domestic violence situation or something like that, don't go back. Okay, I want to qualify that. Sometimes the most wise and gracious thing to do is to uh, create very safe and appropriate boundaries. But principally speaking, every time Jesus healed someone, they begged to go with him. And typically Jesus said, nope, nope, don't worry. Okay, I'm going to be with you always, but I want you to go back now. I'm not done with those people yet. Go to your city. Go to your town. Go to your family. Go to your workplace. Go to those old friends. Go to that person who rejected you. Go to that person who sinned against you. And take this promise with you because I'm not done yet. That's where the train's going, every time, all the time. And this is my favorite part of the story, the climax. How God ministers. He listens and he sees. Oh, this is beautiful. You know, I went to a, a homeless man's funeral last week. Have you ever been to a, a homeless person's? funeral before like and homeless people die as well like they they also have services to mourn the loss of their friends so this one happened to be in my neighborhood north portland st john's friend of mine who uh, regularly ministers to people without homes living in tents on the streets and whatnot um he said hey can the church supply donuts and coffee for this homeless person's funeral um, and of course, when someone says the church, I think, 
who exactly are you referring to? <laughs> you want me to just call everyone? Um, I said, of course I'll show up with donuts and coffee. Where, yeah, it would be an honor. It's actually right down the street from my house. So I rock up, and of course they got a little, little tent sort of situation, encampment there, um, right in the, the kind of the quad area in St. John's. And um, rock up with donuts and coffee and just start to talk to these guys. They were mourning. It's about half a dozen of them, mostly guys, a couple women. They were mourning. One guy I was talking to in particular, he was just tears. He wasn't putting on a big show. He wasn't making a display. He was just, he was clearly like very, very hurt because he lost his friend. Davidson was his name, the guy who died. The, the homelessness challenge that we face in our city complicated I, I don't even I, I wouldn't even know where to begin in terms of like how, how do we help people how do we how do we help our whole society but then even just individuals like where where do we begin what's the right move when does hurting help when does helping hurt when does it, it's just an absolute mess it feels like an incredible opportunity for the church of Jesus to rise up and, and to begin to be salt and light, to enact compassion wherever we see people hurting. I realized last week, standing around these men, one of the ladies, she sang a song, a cappella, dedicated it to Davidson. It was very sweet. And don't get me wrong, it was, it was complete, it was madness. Like the whole thing was just like, it, it felt a little like out of control. Um, but it was just so heartwarming, so heartwarming. These, these were human beings, people who were once little boys and girls like my own. One of them was a Vietnam vet. It seemed like at least a couple of them were probably really struggling with mental health challenges. And so yeah, it was messy. It was, it was a little crazy, and it was human. And I felt the presence of Jesus in that place, in that moment, um, far more than I have in a long time. Those people needed to be heard and seen. One of them needed, needed a new tent, because the day after had like poured super hard, so we gave him a tent, some tarps. Someone showed up here a few days ago, dropped off a bunch of tarps to add to our little community pantry. It's building up. We've got socks. We've got tarps. We still have way too much macaroni and cheese. Please stop bringing macaroni and cheese. <laughs> it's great. There is grace in the hearing and the seeing of human beings. You notice how the angel of the Lord says nothing about, now here's how you, you need to fix the problem. Reckon there was definitely steps to be taken. There was like the reality of, of going back and navigating those tensions and the abuse. But that doesn't seem to be the thing that we're to notice the most. It's not the thing that's highlighted in the story. It's that God sees and he listens. 
You know, as a church family, um, if, unless you're brand new here this morning, um, you will have heard us talk about our ecclesias a lot. Ecclesia is just the Greek word for church. It's what we call our small groups. It's what we do as a church to get out of rows and get in circles. To form little micro communities within the church so that there are settings where we can share our stories and be heard and seen. And that's why it's my hope that every single person who calls Grace City their church home would be in an ecclesia. Because if you're not being seen and heard by brothers and sisters in Christ who can walk with you, who can bless you, pray for you, or just simply hear you, then you're missing out on a huge part of church. In a lot of ways, uh, this past year, we've had to like reboot everything. And so we're, we're asking people to step up and, and lead ecclesias. And yes, I'm plugging it mid-sermon, sorry. I wonder if there's anyone here this morning who feels invisible. Who feels unseen, unheard, who's hurting alone. So I was praying this week, I felt the Lord really just put it on my heart. Leave space this morning to minister to people who feel invisible. You know, when you're a little kid, that's like one of the superpowers you long for, invisibility. When you get older, it's not cool. It's enough to make you want to die. Particularly when you find yourself surrounded by people who seem to just look straight through you. Not because they hate you, they're evil people, but because listening and seeing, it's sacramental. It's a means of experiencing God's grace. It's a small miracle or a big one, depending upon how you see it. Now, I don't know how this is going to look, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to put it out there. In just a moment, I'm going to ask our worship team to come back up front, or maybe it will just be you, Hannah, I'm not sure. Um, and then I'm going to ask you to somehow let it be known that lately, or maybe even just now in this moment, you feel like you're suffering alone. You can kind of relate to Hagar. You've made some bad choices some people around you have made some bad choices and now you are experiencing the collateral damage of, of those choices, of that sin. And you're hurting. And maybe you have shared your story with people. Maybe, maybe you won't shut up about it because you're hurting that bad. Or maybe just no one's really hearing you. Maybe it's been a long time since you've not felt invisible. And I believe that this morning, right now, in the next 15 minutes, the Holy Spirit is present here to minister through us as brothers and sisters. It's going to take a little courage now. It's taking courage just for me to go, to, to lead us to this place. But I want to ask you to raise your hand. You say, I'm, I'm, that, that makes perfect sense to me. 
I know what it is to suffer alone. I know what it is to feel invisible, unheard, unseen. And maybe I'm not ready to to spill my guts or to, to share my whole life story, but I sure could use a touch from God right now. I could sure use that reminder, that assurance that God is here and he sees me. He hears me. He knows my pain. He hears my affliction, to use the words of scripture. Does that mean something to you? Holy Spirit, won't you come? We need the strength that you give us, the love that you pour into our hearts more today than ever before. We are more hungry, we are more grateful. We are more desperate for more, more of you than ever before. Why don't you begin to, to speak to us and move in our hearts. <clears throat>